Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the 35th episode of Talk Local Today. I was joined by a very special guest in the local 219 studios. He is an Andrain grad. He is a war veteran. He is a prolific writer and Times columnist, Joseph Pete. And the conversation lasts about 50 minutes. Uh, we talked about industry, um, the retail space of this area in particular, uh, the steel mills and what's going on with them uh, with the upcoming contract talks. And then we talked about Strachan Tills and what we can kind of expect in the future of what's going on in the region. So the conversation, again, is around 50 minutes. Uh, you don't want to miss this one, if you're, especially if you're interested in what's happening. Uh, so without uh, anything else to add, here's my conversation with Joseph Pete. I would say in the last, like, over the the year, I mean, just from tracking, it seems like you guys are getting more aggressive in the craft beer world. You guys are being in the more social entertainment components more than ever. And is that true, or is that just an observation? Uh, um, uh, I felt like I was doing more craft beer stories a couple years ago when the breweries were opening, like, every other day. Okay. I felt like <laughs> I've done a bad. I've been trying to come up with a, a ways to, like... I've t- we told we've talked about like the idea of a column like maybe it's just like here's are the new beers that people are doing or something like that but it's like we don't have the time or the space unfortunately to be doing the like the long form um, uh, you, you know interviews like this and, but it's uh, I wish our craft beer coverage were better honestly like we, we should be doing more with it like we'll get you know if somebody's doing an investment or something like that but it's just kind of the traditional news coverage um, there has been a lot going on, but I felt there was this big like flurry where there like every town is getting a brewery, and then that's kind of tapered off, and now like distilleries and meaderies, and that that seems to be more of the thing at least for now. But like, yeah, we we got to do a better because it's one of the big growth industries. Sure. Somebody, yeah, it's it's been very successful. It's a tourism driver. It brings people into the community who might not otherwise have reason to visit. It's like there's so many benefits for it. It's jobs. It's people, you know, making something in their own community and selling it to the community. It's something like unique that you can be proud of. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Do you so? Do you see any other trends in the industry? I mean, because it seems like being being on your finger on the pulse as much as it is, it's got to be pretty open to see like any kind of trends that are happening from that, I guess, aerial view. Oh, um, uh, trend. Well. Like, it's not unique to Northwest Indiana, but we have seen a lot of the national retail has been really struggling. Like, one thing I've been doing <laughs> constantly is like, you know, well, there's now the Sears bankruptcy and, you know, the stores at the South Lake Mall, at the Marquette Mall. Like, how much longer are they going to be around? Um, they're already struggling to fill the Carson space. Uh, the Marquette Mall is down to like one anchor tenant now. The entire inside is close like a lot of the question is how do we fill these huge empty big box stores that we had um you might see some more successful ones like south lake where they turn it into more of like an entertainment thing at orland park they had um i don't remember it was macy's or sears or one of one of the big box stores that are closed and they're putting in like a movie theater and more restaurants and they're just doing whatever they can to kind of so like reach keeping up with like all the changes in retail has been huge because and it's not unique to our area it's when if like a sears or kmart here closes it doesn't say anything bad about northwest indiana this is a phenomenon that's been happening you know nationally um a lot of these it's just uh people way people shop is changing there's a lot more online shopping now obviously and it's just been a hard time for some of these traditional brick and mortar retails particularly department stores but that, that's been a big trend. And then the rebound of steel, I guess, has been another one. They've benefited a lot from the tariffs. 
companies are making money again. U.S. Steel is actually hiring instead of laying people off, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, there have been the contract talks, and the workers have been really pushing to, you know, share in some of the prosperity the companies are finally having. They've gone years without raises. Uh, it's been, you know, they've sacrificed a lot for the well-being of the companies, and now they're at the bargaining table, hoping to, you know, not only preserve their benefits but share in some of the prosperity they've helped the companies achieve. Crazy. And so you've said you've unpacked a lot there. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Um, I want to get to the steel stuff for sure, because I think that's one of the things where you can almost see a direct uh, correlation with the Trump administration and the tariffs that's going on, especially with like overseas. That's really helped them out, at least from an uh, outside perspective, seems that's to be the case. Yes, um, there were there have been tariffs for a long time. Tariffs have been we've had 190 different steel tariffs on different countries. But like previously, it's always been case by case. Like they've proven China was violating trade rules. The union is the USW United Steelworkers Union has been complaining about it for years. It was along the lines of like, well, you have to prove they're doing trade rule, they're violating trade rules. They're selling subsidized steel. Like in the case of China, which is responsible for dumping a lot of the steel on the global stage, like the government there will pay for their entire electricity bill, which is huge for like a steel mill. The reason Nipsco was like a Fortune 500 company and a bunch of other utilities weren't was because they were making money hand over fist from the steel mills. They, you just use a ton of electricity. Sure. Like they, um, the refinery too and everything. But then uh, they, you know, these companies were, a lot of these foreign companies were gen, you know, they had, they're making all the steel, the governments were propping them up there. They wanted the good paying steel jobs, but they didn't really have anywhere to sell it like locally. So they're exporting it at a loss elsewhere with the intent of putting, you know, steel makers in different countries out of business. You had like hundred year old steel mills in Scotland that like just closed. And the idea was they would eventually, they'd sell it at a loss in the short term. Eventually they would supplant steel mills in the US and Canada and elsewhere, and then just be their sole provider of steel. And then the union has been fighting this for years. They've taken all these trade cases, but the problem was with the way it was set up, like usually there would be layoffs or whatever, and then they could get the tariffs finally. And so the tariffs would only go into effect after the damage was done. And then this time they put like blanket 25% tariffs on steel across the board. Um, Prices, it's as a result, the imports have been falling off, the prices have skyrocketed, the companies are like making money again. US Steel Steel is gonna invest like 750 million in Gary Works over the next like four years. um, It's really helped stabilize an industry that's been struggling for a while. Crazy. Um, So you said something there that's really poignant that I never even thought about was that the effect that the steel mills have on local commerce directly. Because you you know it from like a residential side, right? From a business to residential and how like the the great flight of of, uh, or plight of Gary has been a direct like descendant of that problem when it comes to the steel industry and their, their fall. But the NIPSCO side of it, I didn't even think of. Oh, yeah, no, it has an impact on, uh, yeah, well, because the, the days, this, I mean, the, they, they built the cities around, like, these steel mills employing, they each used to employ, like, 30,000 workers. Crazy. And there was a time when people would literally get off of, you know, they would have to go to, like, um, Serbia and all these countries in Europe and actively recruit people and then just bring them over to work in the steel mills because they just needed anybody who would come in and work. You could get, you could literally come in off the train and with, like, a bindle 
to the gates of like Gary Works or somewhere and then get a job and start working the next day. Like that's the way it used to be. Yeah. Crazy. But they, they needed like so much manual labor though at the time. Like they needed people to like literally shovel like coking coal into the blast furnaces and they needed people to manually unload like iron ore off the lake freighters coming in from Minnesota and elsewhere. And like now all that's been like automated. You go to the steel mills now, they're like trains where they, you know, they're robot trains. They like run themselves. You have, um, uh, you can go through like a finishing line where it's a building like a mile long. It's like a skyscraper turned on its side. You can walk there. There's like a hot, or there's um, you know a band of steel coil whizzing like by you like the whole time, and you can walk for like a mile and not see anybody. And you finally get to the end, and they have like two steel workers will be there with like um, iPads or whatever running this whole huge operation, and it just doesn't require the physical labor it once did. And then the whole the whole industry in Northwest Indiana now employs fewer people than like Inland or Youngstown or any of the big mills once did. And then, yeah, that, that has had a big toll on Gary and a lot of the cities because you used to have a lot of people like my grandfather, my grandfather was a steel worker and his great grandfather was you used to walk from, they would walk from like Etna over to the mill and you didn't even need a car. You'd just walk to your, you know, you built up like they built up Marktown in East Chicago with the idea that the, all the workers would just walk over to, you know, the harbor and work at the steel mill jobs, but they just, Unfortunately, these jobs and in heavy industry everywhere has become so automated, they just don't need that kind of manual you know, labor anymore. Crazy. And you're talking about contract talks too. And they, so you've toured, so I, there's a lot, of, I, I got a lot of questions oh, sorry, out of that. Sorry. It's all good. Um, so the contract talks to the union in particular, and um, I just got some general questions. I know it's a packed question too, but I, I know we're objective here, but the union side of it. Um, I, what, what, putting our opinions on the side of uh, what, whether they're positive or negative, the strength of those and when it comes to the steel, is that creating the new issues because of the newfound uh, boom of that industry and the, the, the pay for their workers? Is that what the, the crux of the argument is? The, well, they, 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 um, the, their, their biggest issue is that last time during the contract talks, they've had few raises over the last two rounds, like the last six years they've had uh, very small raises. They agreed last time to have no raises because the industry was um, like U.S. Steel was idling mills. They idled East Chicago tin. They idled Granite Works down by St. Louis in um, southwestern Illinois. They idled a lot of facilities. And the thought, the worry was the steel industry, you know, mills could close. People could get laid off. The workers made concessions they otherwise wouldn't. Like they you know, agreed to no raises for three years, which, you know, you know, cost of living goes up, everything goes up, like, you know, except for your paycheck. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so they were, uh, you know, they were, uh, they, they, they went to the table saying, well, we made sacrifices last time. Now the company's making money, the companies are making money again, like ArcelorMittal in the first two quarter, they turned a profit of 3.1 billion. They're doing like pretty well now. And the thought is, you know, well, we should be able to share in this. We made sacrifices. We helped get these tariffs in place. We've been lobbying for it in years because the union has, they've paid for and fought for a lot of the trade cases. And they were like the initial ones, like lobbying for section 232 and everything. And they've helped kind of, they say they've helped kind of create the conditions to where the steel companies are profitable again. And they want to share in that with forms of raises. There's a tentative agreement already with US Steel where it's basically 14% raises over four years. Technically it's like 14.7 if you do the compounding because you know, like the 3.5% raise over a 4% raise is slightly more than just that. But there, there's like a 4,000 signing bonus. The biggest fight was the companies were saying, well, we want to be competitive on cost. We want to be, 
Um, we want to be competitive on cost. We want our operations here to be sustainable for the long term. They've been trying to push uh, the steelworkers toward uh, healthcare with more out-of-pocket costs, like a lot of people in the private sector have had to, you know, pay over the last, especially over the last several years, where you know higher premiums, higher deductibles, those type of things. The steelworkers have been like resisting this um, because they've had collective bargaining for years, where they fought for the benefits they have, and then they also argue that it's a very dangerous job. You know, usually you still have several people getting killed every year. You're dealing with um, uh, l molten liquid metal that's like thousands of degrees. It's hotter than the inside of a volcano. It's hotter than lava. And some of those, you have uh, moving machinery where it weighs 2,000, 3,000 pounds. Like you can easily get crushed. You can get very, very badly hurt or killed very easily. So their health insurance is like very important to them. And they're very much like fighting the companies on that point. With U.S. Steel, the full details haven't come out, but U.S. Steel seems to have backed away largely from like demanding concessions on that, and they're trying to pave out something similar with Ar ArcelorMittal right now. So, do you see it being a long, laborious uh, contract negotiation, or do you think it's going to end pretty quick? Uh, right now, it looks like it's going to. Before, it was hard to say. It didn't look because <laughs> they were like uh, so much of it with these contract talks is just like performative. It's like play acting. Like they do. Um, they did the strike votes, the strike ratification, where they you know, potentially could strike. They actually had some leverage this time though, because the prices are so high and the volumes are so good that like, if they went on strike, the companies would be losing out on a ton of money. And especially if one steel uh, workers went on strike and the other didn't, that like the, you know, one company could come in and take away market share. Like, so they had leverage that they wouldn't otherwise normally have just because things are going so good. Um, but there, there was a saber rattling of, you know, we might strike this, that, and the other. And then, um, but it seems to like, they reached a tentative agreement with US Steel. That kind of like with these in the auto uh, contract talks, usually once you have the industry standard, then everybody kind of, everyone else kind of falls in line. So ArcelorMittal has incentive now to try and strike basically the same deal with them. So at this point, it looks like things have cooled off and they're probably gonna be resolved in short order, but it's, it's, it's almost impossible to say because you can never tell like, you know, what either side is right because they tend to they, they, both sides tend to kind of keep their cards close to the vest it's very um you know you don't find out until later like fully what's being so it's, it's it's impossible to say with any certainty but things look much better than they did like a month ago or whatever and it looks like it's finally like winding down to where the, you know there's going to be details the mills are going to stay open because they've been talking about possibly like the largest work stoppage since like the mid 80s crazy yeah well hopefully that doesn't happen oh yeah well no because that would have a huge impact on everybody else because those are those are some of the best paying jobs we have in the region those yeah. are like with the overtime they put in those are largely six-figure jobs those are people who are not going to be spending at the supermarket they're not going to be spending you know at a number of local Restaurants, businesses yeah. here across the board no no major purchases like cars or appliances it has a ripple effect that affects everybody here it's no longer like Steel is no longer the only game in town in Northwest Indiana, but it's still like one of the central pillars of our economy, you know, so it's, yeah, we're still talking, it's still like the second largest employer, I think, after healthcare. So we're talking like thousands and thousands of workers. It's it's very significant still. So what is the biggest industries of this area? I think healthcare is probably, healthcare su surpassed steel at one point, healthcare, steel, uh, heavy industry is pretty big. You have stuff like the Lear, the seat making in Hammond, and you just have a lot of different factories. Uh, beyond that, it's just the standard mix of like education, uh, government, things like that. Cool. Oh, construction is huge though too. Construction is probably one of the biggest 
we have a lot of skilled tradesmen. That's yeah. Oh, so so really, it's almost like a perfect storm for the region right now, in a way, because you've got the success of our major industry, yeah, which is the top three. That seems to be with, with especially with the the rebound of steel, and then you've got this entire uh, flight of people coming in and moving in here at such a rapid pace. At least from the real estate market that existed for the four months over the summer. Oh yeah, would yeah. definitely point to the population growth is rapid, right? Uh, yeah, the, especially like the Tri Town area and Crown Point. Um, it's maybe not as much. It's it seems like it will be more from the housing data i've seen it seems like there'd be more than there is but there is a significant amount um and you but i think illinois actually they lose more people to like florida and a lot of the retirement states than they do to us um but that i think that's normal anywhere though but they're especially like if you you know drive down indianapolis boulevard you see a ton of illinois plates and yeah. they're not all just coming to shop a lot of them are moving to like the saint john area especially and um crown point but yeah you you, you are seeing an in migration and then you see, you know, even um, suppose we'll we'll see what the latest census figures, but supposedly even the northern cities like Hammond and East Gary have been benefiting because you see a lot of people moving from the south side, trying to get away from like the violence and everything there, who are now moving to northwest Indiana. Yeah, and, and from some of the construction conversations that we've had uh, privately with some of the people that work with us, is it seems like the East Chicago and Hammond locations are starting to rebound from a real estate side too because of that immigrant that by well, relatively rough word usage usage of immigration. Oh yeah, but so that seems to be like if the area is starting to profit across the board, and and people are starting to make it more of a dense situation. What does is there any form of trends that we can look out for from a business side that could be beneficial for moving here? Are we going to get higher end chains, or is there any kind of component like that to look out for? Uh, well, retail falls rooftops. They always say so. The one thing, like as the population continues to grow south, like particularly toward um, the Tri Town area, and you know Winfield continues, you're going to see more retail falling where people are living. Like you're gonna see, um, you know, you have your traditional retail hubs or whatever, like South Lake and so forth. But they've talked about like the Galleria. I don't know where that project stands, but that massive outdoor one right off the yep. interstate in Crown Point. And then you're gonna start to see a lot more like retail coming down here to Crown Point. You're gonna start to see a lot more retail coming to like uh, Dyer and St. John, especially. Um, you're gonna, you know, start to see a lot of the businesses will follow because they're gonna want to be close and in the neighborhood of a lot of, uh, and not that those areas don't, but the more housing you get there, the more, you know, the more stuff is gonna follow. Um, some, you know, not all are growing. Like banks have been closing branches. Uh, big box stores seem to be uh, in a dicey area, but like a lot of like the strip mall development, like that type of stuff, you're gonna see a lot more um, following the housing. Uh, beyond that, it's hard to. Th th that's one thing you can count on. It's it's hard to say like offhand. Right on. Is there yeah. any precursor to explain why some of the banks are failing? I don't. I mean. Oh, well, I... they're not failing, but it's um, the people are doing so much more banking online. That a lot, like First Midwest has been clo They're closing like five more branches in Northwest Indiana. They bought out like Bank Calumet, and they bought out another one. And it's just that they don't need as many brick and mortar ones as they once did. It's uh. uh they're, they're actually, most banks are turning record profits and have been for like Wintrust or whatever has turned, um, they run the Community Bank of Dyer and someone's just across the state line. They've had like record profits for like 14 straight quarters or something crazy. Like, but they, wow. um, you know, people are doing more banking on their phone. They're doing more banking. There are fewer reasons to go into a physical bank, especially among younger generations. You still have, you know, older demographics are still using them. However, 
a lot of the bankers are kind of seeing the writing on the wall and trying to, you know, they still do some uh, uh, brick and mortar locations and it is good advertising to some extent. It's almost like a billboard in some cases, like, hey, we serve this community, but they just don't need to have as many as they once did. And so like, that's one area where, you know, you might get a lot more people moving into like Winfield or whatever, but you're not necessarily gonna see as many brand branches as you did when like, Munster first got built out in the 40s or 50s or whatever. Like, just it's just not, it's just, people have changed, the consumer habits have just changed. Well, wasn't that the whole component of like the mattress firms and everything was oh, to yeah. like <laughs> rent out six buildings as close as possible to be, it, it costs less in, or it costs more, less to do that than it would in advertising billboards and newspapers and all that stuff. Yes. At least yeah, that, that was the concept, well, right? Well, that was, well, that, well that, that was part of it. And our mattress situation got like widely, it was on the Radiolab podcast, or no, the, um, Freakonomics, like the Cherville had so many mattress stores, like six within a mile or something, <laughs> yeah. mattress firms that ended up on the national like Freakonomics podcast or whatever out of like <laughs> WNYC or whatever. They actually sent a reporter to go drive through Cherville and talk about it on there. But the, the, the way that situation developed and the way it's developed there is because you had, um, that's why they kept them open for so long. But initially you had like, one of them was like Sleepies and one of them was like, there was a bunch of different mattress brands because that thing just took off. The whole mattress business took off because it's relatively, you only need a couple employees. They're relatively cheap to open and operate these stores. You don't need to have all your inventory there. You can have most of it in warehouses. You just need a couple like display models. So it's really, and, the, and at the time though, like real estate was like, commercial real estate was really cheap. It was like right after the great recession, your rents were like obscenely cheap. It was just very easy to go in and open, like uh, get the financing to open these mattress stores and end up where mattress firms started buying out like sleepies and it bought out all these other companies. And then all of a sudden you're driving down and they're like, why is there a mattress firm Every right across the street <laughs> yeah. from, it was like Starbucks in Chicago in the nineties where you, you joke, people were joking about like Starbucks opening in the bathroom of another Starbucks. Cause they're like right across the street from each other or whatever. It was a similar saturation thing, but it was, like they didn't set out to do that it just happened because they like a lot of businesses will move close to each other like walgreens and cvs or fast food restaurants because even though they're technically a competitor that when you have more stuff in one place that's where people will go then to buy or to get their prescription filled or whatever and you'll actually do more business if you're closer to competitors like that in a lot of especially in a lot of retail areas really and so that's the, why you see a burger king and mcdonald's across the street yes yeah because they both want to be in the same place because they want to like kind of train the customer to like, this is where you go to get a burger for lunch or whatever. And then they'll, they'll both benefit because you know, one day you might feel like Burger King, one day you might feel like McDonald's. Sure. Like you ultimately, but if you keep driving to the same place for lunch, you're ultimately gonna like, both will benefit in the long run. And it was the same deal with all the mattress stores opening like next to each other. Like it was just like, there's good retail spots, but it was also like, you get the idea of like, well, you know, if we don't find something here, we can go across the street and see what they have over there. But it just ended up where Mattress Firm was kind of like the reigning champion and they, they bought everybody else out. And then it was ridiculous where it was like, Mattress firm in one strip mall, mattress firm across the street, mattress firm in the neighboring strip mall. And then, you know, it became like all those jokes about Cherryville, like Mattressville and, you know. So yeah, 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 yeah. it was like. <laughs> talking to you is like talking to SimCity. Like, oh, you ever sorry. Play that? You ever play that game? Uh, no, no, yeah. No, so essentially it was about building a city and oh, like yeah. there'd be all these things you can do. Like, I'm gonna put a factory here and I'm gonna put like a restaurant here and then you have to build housing. It's like you're talking like to a verbal SimCity. It's really okay, fun cool. for me. 
me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm just letting you know. Um, the, so going into the, you talked a little bit about the malls too, and I really wanted to touch base with that again because that's an interesting issue that I think is dealing across the country. In particular here, we've seen Woodmar Mall fall, oh, yeah. right? Um, and the big box malls being that's on its way down because of the, the rise in online shopping. What does the future hold for a place like South Lake Mall? Because when I was when I, when I was uh, looking around to uh, potentially partner with this smaller business, um, we went through the process of getting a storefront in South Lake Mall, and it's pretty much the closest thing to extortion you can get. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they tell you that you you, you, you anything over twenty five hundred dollars a month in profits, you've got to open their your books to them. Oh wow. And then okay. you that lead that leaves you for like more uh, ta- like rent if you make more than that and they won't allow any small businesses to sign more than a year lease so they always keep themselves kind of flexible to take you out and bring in a box chain yes because that's just better for their business so it's a strange kind of uh turmoil that's not really in it for the small business person but more in for the big business what's that look like for the long-term sustainability of that model Yes, uh, I don't know how sustainable it is, and that did happen to my brother, actually. If anyone remembers, he used to run Pete's Basement in the, it was kind of a Spencer's Gift, like, kind of <laughs> knockoff in uh, South Lake Mall. It was there for a couple years, but he ended up getting displaced because Clark, Clark Street Sports wanted to move in, and they have a clause in the leases where if a national chain, basically, if they're full up and a national chain wants in, like they can bump out somebody local because they're like a large mall operator and they have an interest with doing business with people they can put in like 20 malls. They don't care about like somebody local where they're just going to be here. Right. Like they're, yeah, they're like very, um, they treat small businesses very kind of uh, unfairly historically. Uh, and he got bumped out and he looked at like, well, maybe across the street, but he knew he wouldn't get as much foot traffic. And it was just like, so he gave up on that like pursuit because they just literally had nowhere else to, to be. Oh, it stinks. <laughs> yeah. And it was, but like now the, the balance of power is kind of shifting to where like they, a lot of these um, national companies have been going bankrupt, not just like the, a lot of the anchor stores have traditionally drawn people in. Like Carson's is gone now. Sears might be gone soon. Um, Sears already sold the property there for like a lease, a cash lease back where they had owned it. And now they sold it to some real estate holder and now they're paying rent on it. So to just because they are so desperate to try to drum up some cash. Uh, and then, but you're seeing like the South Lake Mall has had like a uh, thing now where they're inviting entrepreneurs to come in. And originally it was a kiosk, like run your own kiosk in the mall. And they had a contest with who had the best idea. And then um, the winner wasn't ultimately able to do that, but now they're doing a whole storefront. Like they're like, oh, you know, you can win free rent for a year. Like they're desperate to try to get like a local like person in. Cause a lot of the traditional mall retailers have been like going bankrupt or going under. It's leaving them with a lot of vacant space. A lot of malls nationwide have had to repurpose. They're doing things like they're bringing in churches. They're bringing in like um, uh, a lot of restaurants is a big one. The, like a lot of times they'll tear down an old department store and put in like a lifestyle center where it's a bunch of new restaurants. Cause you, you I mean, you can't, um, you can't order food online through like Postmates, but people still like going out to eat. You're mm-hmm. not, you know, you might be ordering your buying clothes or books online or whatever, but you still, you still, your chances are you're still going out to dinner. Like, oh yeah. So that, that, that's one area where they've kind of still tried to bring people in. But then, um, you know, oh, who was it? Off the top of my head, I don't remember, but they, they've lost a couple like in the past two years to where the national chains have gone under, like shoe retailers and that kind of thing. 
Um, but right now they're a lot more friendlier to bringing in other businesses and then like repurposing, like at the um, Marquette Mall in Michigan City, they're looking at possibly bringing in storage units into the old JPC Pennies wow. and turning it into a storage thing. Cause it's like, you're gonna have, you're gonna be stuck with a lot of empty space and you gotta figure out, you know, what you're gonna do to fill it. So in the future malls will probably be a little bit more friendly to like local entrepreneurs. But the question is, are they gonna be as much of a draw as they once were? And can they justify the high rent that you were, you know, talking about? Like Crazy. If, they don't, if, they're not, if they don't have the same foot traffic that they did. But a lot of people are saying though, that like malls like South Lake will be fine. They'll be able to adapt, they'll survive somehow. But what it's the kind of the ones that are less like, uh, um, like the Highland Ultra is in foreclosure right now. Once the Ultra closed, like, you know, now you've seen Phallus went under, Dollar Tree or Dollar General, I forget which. One of them went under and like they're foreclosing on the whole thing. But the ones that are kind of like second tier, they're gonna really struggle because they're, they have like really, they've had to borrow a lot of money. And then right now they have a hard time like bringing in people and commanding high rent. And so it's, yeah, but crazy. Yeah. Because we can kind of see it a little bit with the model of Century Mall, right? Oh, absolutely. The old Century yeah. Mall. So that's just pretty much been an, uh, an empty mall. Yeah. With Occasionally a, a Halloween store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, that, but that area still really brought in some traffic with the Portillo's and the Panera Bread. Um, and Jelly, I think, is the breakfast place oh, yeah. right there, right? So there's got to be a lot of traffic in, and it kind of all surrounded House of Kobe. So is there still the is, is there still because of how much pavement there is? Is that always going to be some form of destination for commercial? Uh, probably. Uh, the, well, the one thing they're saying is like enclosed malls are kind of they people have been talking about like the death of malls for years and years and years, and it rem you still can drive by South Lake and the parking lot's packed. Packed. Even yeah. even when like half the things are closed, like it's uh so it's probably exaggerated like the death of malls like anyone who's ever like saying stuff categorically there's probably some element of like exaggeration to it or whatever but like there uh, there has been a trend though to more like shops on Main more of the outdoor kind of shopping seems to be more of the thing now um, like you're not gonna see as many big boxes you're gonna see kind of smaller spaces a lot of it is they're going to be doing like ordering online. You know, they're going to have a lot of in-store pickup. Like places like Strack and Mantilla have been doing like Instacart where you can go, you can either get it delivered at home or you can do curbside pickups. So you're going to see a lot more where the retailers are pushing people to like order more online, um, trying to preempt just losing the business to Amazon or whoever and the, or Zappos or whatever. Uh, but then like, you, so you're probably gonna see a lot of smaller spaces and you're probably gonna see a lot more like outdoor kind of retail, like that Galleria one they've been talking about in Crown Point, I think was a mainly like outdoor. And then, you know, they try to bring in people with stuff like, you know, bowling alleys and movie theaters and things like that and like experiences. Cause you can't, se you can sell experiences online, but that's one thing that you can still get to, to bring people in. But it's uh, generally, you're gonna see a lot more, shops on Main is probably more of the future than like South Lake Mall. Interesting. Yeah. I was talking to somebody and it really brings up a good point of current business and how it's kind of uh, manifested itself and through progression. But I was talking to Karen from Beauty and the Beach and she was saying how like tanning salons are closing, you know, because it's just one thing. And she she was kind of reinforcing the idea that businesses almost can't be one thing anymore. That's probably true. They, yeah. need, to, <laughs> they need to diversify and do three or four things. Yeah, because that's the thing, though, too. A lot of the businesses, when they're looking for growth, that's what they'll do is they'll try to, like, you could go to Planet Fitness now, and now you have tanning salons as part of the, right. you get the black card or whatever. And then there's a, a lot of the places are trying to make it more convenient because everybody's harried. Everybody's got a lot of demands on their time. Like, people, a lot of businesses are trying to do more things for more people. 
And then you're starting to see like one thing the groceries have complained about for years is like literally everybody's trying to sell groceries now. You can go to like a Menards and it's like to buy lumber or whatever, but they still have like, you know, popcorn and pop and all these like grocery items like there. Cause the, the, you know, it's, you know, they need to fill space. They can make a quick buck on some impulse items, but like there's dollar stores ever since the great recession have really risen up as a source of groceries. You saw a lot of people going there cause they had to, a lot of people just going there to save money. Um, and they've really bulked up their grocery game. So you're starting to see a lot of like blurring of like traditionally like, but that's been going on for a long time though. I mean, we don't go to yeah. butchers anymore. I mean, some butchers are, you know, a lot of butchers still around. You, you, you need them like if you're doing a lamb roast or something like that. But, you know, you don't go to like the butcher anymore. You don't go to, you know, the baker. A lot of the stuff has been consolidating for years. But you've really seen a lot of like more. Um, it, it's definitely a phase of that now where, yeah, a lot of people are trying to get out of like a particular niche and try to do a couple things for people. Crazy. Uh, you mentioned Strax. And so we, we know, I think it's well documented, their problems, especially in the last couple of years. It seems like they're starting to kind of like right the ship. Um, so what, where do you see from that, that business in particular and how are they kind of doing now? Yeah, I think they're probably doing, well, they're doing a lot better now. They're, a lot of their problems were caused because they were um, owned by um, Central Grocers out of Joliet. And it was this big co-op that served like 140 people or more than a hundred or several hundred like grocery stores across Chicagoland. Some of which like Treasure Island went under. Treasure Island was one of their bigger. Um, so it wasn't like the problems weren't isolated to them. It was a lot of the, uh, the grocery industry as a whole because a lot of the places they served were these smaller like local grocery stores where it might be, you know, one location or might, you know, one place in Whiting or one place in Hammond or whatever. And these places aren't able to compete on cost as much as like, you know, now they're facing all this competition from like Myers and Walmart and all these Target and all these big national chains are coming in and they have like the buying power to sell stuff like really, really cheap. And then, you know, you used to have like, you know, your neighborhood grocer where people would almost like walk there a lot of the time, especially in urban areas, but like they, they're not able to compete on price with some of these other, these other ones. So like all of the clients of Central Grocers were like, and Strack and Mantilla is probably doing better than most of them. But they were struggling um, and the company ended up like going under and then uh, they ended up pulling out of they strengthened their business because they pulled out of the Illinois area where, um, you know, they didn't have as strong a brand as they do in Indiana. Now they've been pushing like the Indiana made marketing and everything. They've uh, like here, the Northwest Indiana's chain. They're like beloved. Like in um, Illinois, they were just kind of another supermarket. They weren't yeah. really like, you know, they didn't have the strong like hometown grocer association that they do here. And then, so they pulled out of Illinois. They ultra, when they debuted the ultra concept in the early eighties, like it was revolutionary. Like they're doing like, you know, discount grocers. Everything's gonna be real bare bones. We're not gonna have all these frills. Like we're gonna have real stark shelving. We're gonna have a lot of off-brand stuff. Like I remember we would go there when I was a kid and it, like we'd get like, um, uh, the cereal where it was just, a, there was no box, it was just in a bag. Yeah. And like half of it would turn to dust by the time you were like, you know, by the time you were nearly done with it. And it was then, like rice water, oh, rice yeah. milk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so funny. But then uh, it was revolutionary at the time, but now everybody's doing that. And a lot of the places that are doing that have a lot better scale, like Aldi or whatever. Like they're, they're doing the same thing, but they can offer it a lot cheaper because they're a huge global company. And then so like Ultra, what is that able to like, 
offer stuff as cheap as it was. And then if you're a discount retailer and you're promising cheap, but then you're not the cheapest, where does that leave you? So they kind of got rid of the ultra brand and now they're focusing on Strack and Ventil and Town and Country. And they're, um, they seem to be in a lot stronger position than they were because they got rid of like their unprofitable stores. Well, they, they didn't get rid of them. They just didn't buy them back. Like they didn't, um, it wasn't like, Central Grocers was the one that ended up closing everything and they bought the ones that they thought would be most profitable. So it wasn't like Strack and Mantilla's decision to like, um, they just didn't, you know, invest in keeping them open. But it's a smaller streamlined company, but they still have more than 20 locations. They're investing all the time in like, you know, the Instacart home delivery, more and more convenient like meal options for people. Like they have those like bag meals where you can heat like the fish and the vegetables for six bucks. And stuff like that. Can't where beat it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can't beat that. And it's a fascinating. Strax has got that. They're like a legacy institution to this area. Yeah. For one reason. And people, like you said, romanticize it a little bit. Because for the grocer side of things, it's like one of the few industries that doesn't really have a local presence. Oh. There's not a lot of, like, you go to New York, there's, you know, bodegas everywhere. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's really easy to get, like, whatever you want and, like, you know, fast food or, like, a little bit of a grocery situation. We don't really have that here. Yeah. It's, so it's kind of an odd thing. So it's kind of like that's our local grocer in a way. So to see them kind of rebound is really positive. And hopefully that kind of continues that trend. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like you have, uh, you know, it's what makes a place unique. You have places like Louisville or Austin where they're like, keep Austin weird, keep Louisville weird. And what they mean is like, keep, you know, don't support these like giant faceless corporate things like if you, it's fine if you're shopping at target but then all your profits are going to like minneapolis and it's going to shareholders all over when you shop at somewhere like local it's staying in the community it's circulating through the community if you go to like any ball field all over you'll see the strack and ventil banners on the outfield yep strack and ventil people are like you know they're you see them at church you see them at the bar you see them at restaurants like they're you know, they're a part of the community and everything. And then, the, the, you know, they fund like so many local causes like the Food Bank and the Northwest Indiana Symphony Orchestra and all this stuff locally. And then when you have, when you know, when you, you've seen it with like banks happen before, because a lot of the banks have consolidated, you, like the local banks would spend a lot of money like locally supporting all these causes. But when it, everybody gets bought out by Chase, they don't spend as much because they, they're allocated like, well, you get like 500,000 for this market for this year or whatever. And they're not like, they're not as invested. They're just not as part of, it's just one of 500 communities that they're serving. And they're not as likely to support charitable causes or, you know. Right, so, right. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, so we've talked a lot about like abstract uh, industry stuff. Is there any special locations you've seen that you love that you'd want to give a shout out to, whether that's oh, okay. like restaurants or craft beer or anything? Well, on the one podcast I've known for my ceaseless plugging of Grindhouse, but I like, uh, <laughs> Gabe's great. I also like uh, Fluid Coffee Bar, which he did recently. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, I like all local coffee places. Sip is good in Crown Point, Sip 2 in Island. Um, there's that new one in Lansing. I don't get out there as much as I'd like uh, to. Troost? Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, there's uh, any kind of local coffee place, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, just support local. Support your local businesses. They they're what makes the place unique. Oh yeah, they're what make Northwest Indiana Northwest Indiana. It's like otherwise you're just like suburban like wallpaper where it's everything's the same as what you'd find anywhere else. Oh yeah, and we talked a little bit off air, and I want to kind of make sure because I don't think people get the day in the life of a newspaper journalist that often. And so, uh, what is a day like for you? How does it start and what does it end? Does it uh, end? Well, it depends, yeah. Well, the thing is, like, with social media now, you're almost on, like, 24-7, including the weekends. Like, at the very least, you're always, like, plugging, like, your paper stories or trying to share news with people because you got to reach the people where they are. 
people are more likely, especially younger people are more likely to be reading news on social media versus like getting the paper delivered to their door. So you have to get news out in front of people. And like now I almost feel like in the news media we're forced to be like carnival barkers where it's not only like, you know, you report the story, but then you have to be like, hey, pay attention to this story. Here's why it's important. And you have to almost do like salesmanship of your, you know, the news you're reporting and just to get it out in front of people. But it's like, uh, I'll just go in. Um, Unfortunately, I cover so many different beats. Like I cover steel, automotive, craft breweries, startups, banking, retail, construction. I cover so many different things that I I don't get out as much as, I I still get out sometimes. I'll cover some like chamber of commerce things or go to the refinery or the, you know, steel mill or the port of Indiana, Burns Harbor, like the first ship is in or some brewery tanks are coming in that are going to Michigan or whatever, whatever the thing might be. Occasionally we'll go out to cover stuff like that. But a lot of it is just trying to keep up with the steady trickle of news and just get it out to people. But then in the, um, but you're on the, you're almost on the clock, like 24 seven, because you have to be, and you also have to monitor social media for stories like, you know, People will share things online and, you know, it might be something you need to get to the next day or something you need to share immediately. And then so it's like it's nonstop adrenaline like all day, every day. Um, Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, what got so I know uh, just to kind of we're probably going to have to wrap up in a little bit here. But um, what I know you're an Andrean guy. You've got a podcast called That's So Region for people to check that out. Yeah. Um, what uh, what got you into writing? Oh, um, I've just been bookish since I was a kid. I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've been a big reader ever since I was like really young. My mom once chastised me for like reading the dictionary and said I need to go out to a park or something. <laughs> and then, um, so I've just loved reading and writing, and I want to be like a fiction writer, a novelist, or whatever. But like, it's just one way that you can get paid. Like uh, newspapers, it's a day job where you can, you know, um, kind of flex your writing muscles and own your writing skills and, you know, get paid to do so. Uh, so that, that that's more or less what got me into it, I guess. Because uh, you're, you're living a very Hemingway life. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, outside the boxing, I'm guessing. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a veteran. Yes. So you have that experience. And yes. then you're coming back and you're doing some journalist stuff. And you do have aspirations for fiction. Because I see you in the mythos zine every once in a while. Yes. Yeah, I, I publish. Well, I publish a lot of fiction, actually. I do a lot of outside of the journalism stuff. I've been in over like 150 literary journals. I do a lot of like poetry and short stories and... Um, Poetry and short stories and uh, oh, um, like humor pieces, stuff like that. I do a lot of uh, I, I submit and write for or I submit to a lot of literary journals. I I've been published in quite a few. I've been rejected by a lot more. But it's like <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's that's just how it goes. Um, yeah. How's the but, formal writing depicted? Your font, your writing, your creative writing. Uh, well, sometimes, occasionally I'll use something for the news as like a starting point for like a short story or something, but I generally tend to prefer works of the imagination versus something that's like too grounded and uh, just because I think it, uh, it will read better. Like some stuff that might be like really emotional for you personally doesn't necessarily translate on the page for other people. You have to focus on kind of doing like a well-constructed um, story, so I try to... Occasionally, be inspired by stuff I write about. I, when I was younger, I kind of thought I would do the Joyce Carol Oates thing because it seemed like she was very prolific. She wrote a ton of short stories, and it seemed like half of them were just inspired by what was in the New York Times that day. <laughs> and so I had that kind of idea where this would be a steady stream of inspiration. But in reality, it hasn't really panned out that way. But it's like you know, 
so, sometimes it's worth uh, you know using that as kind of a muse or inspiration or whatever. Heck yeah! It seems like it's funny that you'd have the, you'd have that kind of creative muscle and have to be stuck writing a business beat. Oh yeah, well yeah, <laughs> it's it, it, it's a paycheck, you know. It's it is what it is. It's um, I think though I like um, I actually like the business thing though because especially when you get to write about like smaller businesses and local businesses and like local entrepreneurs, I feel like they all have like a good story to tell. A lot of them in some spaces like craft brewing are very passionate, as you know from your you know they're very passionate about what they do, and I feel like you're doing story storytelling and you can tell people stories about their hopes and aspirations and that kind of thing when you're dealing with like you know bigger companies it's not necessarily as like dramatic but like with a, in a lot of cases it can be like you know compelling storytelling it's about people who are very interested in one thing or want to make their community a better place or but i most enjoy probably writing about like smaller businesses and like what people are doing locally. Awesome. Um, you're a newly married man. Yes. How's that coming along? Oh, excellent. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to my lovely wife, Meredith. And yeah. And she writes for the Post, right? Yes. Yeah. So we are you... house divided. Unbelievable. <laughs> some people have the White Sox Cubs thing. Some people have <laughs> Purdue IU. We are for rival newspapers, but it, it hasn't really been an issue. It's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I got a chance to meet her at the PCC thing we did at Prime Real Estate. Oh, and that cool. was okay, an awesome yeah. event. Um, that was really about just uh, for those listening, that was about um, if you do have a press release or you do have information to get out to the newspaper outlets or media outlets, how to do it. Yeah. And that was really cool. She seems awesome. Yeah. Um, and so how long have you been married now? Uh, it has been since December 2nd of last year. Um, so 10 or 11 months. Or ten, awesome. no, 10 months, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, we got my wife and I got married two years ago. Yeah. And uh, man, what an experience. It's totally tra tra like uh, changed everything. Oh, yeah. And then we had a kid five months ago, and that's oh, changed congrats. everything. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks. Any ideas for kids for you? Are you guys uh, having any? <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we've, we've, we've got names picked out and everything, so yes. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. That's a crazy experience. If you ever need to talk about that, I'll, I'll, I'll be more than happy. Oh, I appreciate it. I, I, might felt be, like, <laughs> I probably will, actually. <laughs> nobody ever felt, I felt like no one was warning me about how hard it was. Um, but then you start to realize that everyone's like, oh, is it your first? And that's the, their way of warning you oh, okay. that you're in for a rude awakening. It's compounding, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is there any place people can find you? Because I know you're a man of many things. So let, let everybody know where they can find you. Uh, Twitter, I guess. I'm probably mainly known for my Twitter. It's at uh, NWI underscore JSP. Uh, you could find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and Snapchat, but I'm not as active on those. And uh, yeah, but... Twitter is probably what I'm yeah, mainly known for. Cool. And you're on, I mean, you are, in, I mean, I, I was saying it on my podcast last night, uh, talking about when you were coming on, that you are, you, like, people tell me that I feel like, they feel like I'm everywhere at all the time. It feels yeah. like the same thing when I see you, what you've got going on. I got to say, you've done excellent work. I really, I, I don't know if they got this part earlier, but I really admire what you're doing. The long form interview stuff needs to be done. You're doing what, a lot of like what I, you know, Ish Muhammad, like artists, brewers, coffee, like these, these are stories that need to be told and the way you're telling them is great. Like the long form interview, like at the newspaper, we unfortunately just don't like, we, we don't have time to do a podcast of this length. We don't like, we don't have the news hole to be doing like that long an interview. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. like, these are stories that are feel are valuable to community and need to be told that I really like admire and respect what you're doing here. And I think you've got a great operation. And uh, I appreciate that, Joseph, really. Um, I, it give me chills. So oh. thank you. Cause I respect you from afar. I love your work. Um, so keep up the good fight. I know it's not, it doesn't always feel like you're getting anywhere, oh, yeah. but the journalistic side of it's very important, especially today. So I love what you guys do. 
Um, and if there's any way, and I mean this 100%, if there's any way that we can, I don't see anybody as really competitors. Oh yeah, um, I think it's like crap brewing. You're kind of trying to grow the, especially in today's day and age. Oh yeah, and yeah. you just never know, you know? And like there's ways that I'm sure you guys could really help what we're doing, and I'm sure there's ways we could really help what you're doing. So if there's any way that we can collaborate on anything. Oh sure, yeah. That might be above my pay grade, but yeah. Okay, well me casa yeah. su casa, yeah. so for anybody <laughs> listening to it, I'm in. Yeah. Um, so thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks really for Really awesome. Yeah. We've had a great season this far with people. Oh, excellent, uh, yeah. So it's, and this is no exception, so thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Awesome. Uh, so so that'll be the interview and uh, if you have a great week. Oh, all right. Thank you. Later. Later.